Welcome to episode 20 of the Pirates of the Airways podcast, the podcast where we talk to people involved in the land-based pirate radio scene of the 1970s and 1980s. In this episode, we've got the second part of my chat with Martin Spencer, you'll know him as Dave Lane from Alice's Restaurant, Mark Dizani, of course, Rosa Rosine from Radio Zodiac, and of course, we got some input from Laurie Hallett, who was Brian Marshall from Phoenix Radio, and me, Steve Justin from Radio Comsat. We get through plenty in this episode, including the contribution of some other well-known and not-so-well-known pirates, where, when and why some broadcasts took place, and plenty of stories about some near misses with the authorities. So without further ado, let's get into it again. I ask Mark a little bit more about the early days of Radio Zodiac International. So, Zodiac International, I didn't know you back in those days. What, what, when you moved, was it because you moved to London that you started the FM station? Exactly, exactly. Back in, when I was back down in Crawley in West Sussex, um, it was a progression from shortwave to medium wave AM to FM. So going um, from the international to the local audience. And you called it Zodiac all the way through? No, Zodiac International and shortwave. um, Zodiac 49 for a while when we teamed up with Radio 49. We were part of a free radio network as well, which um, provided... Um, like-minded people on the same frequency at the same time as every Sunday um, with the station. It's always been a trend to form networks. I love the idea of forming networks. It's cooperation, isn't it? And and it's also comradeship as well. We built up many good contacts and friends. So we had ABC Radio with Dickie Staines, that's a name for you, uh, Steve Silby, <laughs> um, on the first Sunday of the month. Second Sunday of the month, I think, was Radio Zenith International uh, with Bruce Wayne, um, another great engineer, Andy Green, and given the real names here as well. Um, the third Sunday of the month was a great European music radio with Tom Taylor, um, Barry Stevens, and um, had A.G. Burns on there as well, a, a legend from R&I, Go Short, Go Goes DX. And on the fourth Sunday, Radio Zodiac International. And we were on two frequencies eventually, 6235 and 7325 kilohertz. Um, and each of us uh, did, did um, two frequencies as well every Sunday. And on the fifth Sunday, any fifth Sunday of the month, we'd all team together and provide an hour each and, and usually get together on the North Downs or somewhere for a joint broadcast and a good session down the pub after this. Let's not forget the pub. I remember when we did mobile <laughs> transmissions, you know, the, the ideal site would be within walking distance of a pub. So you could just get there. And But, you know, I, we didn't bother with lookouts and walkie-talkies. We didn't look out. You know, we just went down the pub and came back and changed the tapes. So did you get much interest from the authorities while you were doing these shortwave Not the shortwave, but the medium wave got busted. And I think that was primarily because um, the publicity. We got the front page of the Crawley Observer. He came round and I mocked put the... I, put, I remember putting the transmitter underneath this um, skinny cherry tree in our garden and, and, and sort of posing there. And I think they tokenistically pixelated out my eyes or something like that. But, um, you know, it was, uh, for me, it was just important that all my school friends saw, you know, uh, saw me on the front page of the Crawley Observer. Ego, me, no. And, um, 
And um, many of the school friends who invested, by the way, at the beginning, they soon drifted away from it. And it was just the hardcore anoraks left. A guy called Andy Linton, um, who was on, who what was his name? Dave Hunt on the air, another great engineer. Um, uh, he, he lived locally and he'd DF'd me. He'd heard this enormous signal on shortwave, realized he was listening to a ground wave, heard the mailing address, came around and knocked on my door. Um, his dad worked for ITT and he got his students to build us a nice mixer. Um, he had a nice Revox tape machine. So we all pulled it. He had two Garrard uh, SB25s as well. So we all pulled in our kit and made studios and started the sense of um, collaboration. Then um, the guy from Zenith, Andy Green, lived down the road in Chelwood Gate in the Ashdown Forest. And he had a car, most importantly, as well. And um, so, yeah, and we progressed. So we got onto medium wave and we got busted because I was on the front page of the Crawley Observer. And... Um, and that was it for busts in, in Crawley. We then went on to FM. We had these four watt rigs from Holland, um, which I don't know how stable they were, but they, you know, I think they, they, they'd move when the car battery voltage would go down. But generally for, for a few hours and just four watts, it would, it would be absolutely fine. And we broadcast, um, we broadcast over Crawley quite nicely with four watts. Then we got 50 watts from the North Downs. And then, then, yeah, exactly, I moved to London, had my 50-watt transmitter under my arm, went up Trellick Tower, and, um, and um, got a visit from the Thameside radio guys, saying, oi, this is our patch. Very nicely, it was done, by the way. Uh, they were curious to see who this new kid on the block was, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, but the key for me, and literally it was about the keys, it was about the FB keys, FB1, 2 and 3, fire brigade keys, which gave you access to every um, rooftop in London. I know other people have mentioned this. And um, I was broadcasting from my flat in Hilldrop Crescent in Camden, which ironically was also the first, um, where the first criminal um, apprehended by radio, Dr. Crippen, used to live. Um, and so it's very symbolic that we broadcast from there. I was broadcasting from there and I was giving out my home phone number. Um, if, if I remember rightly, I remember doing taking phone calls uh, on Zodiac. Yes. In I can't remember if you had the studio. It always felt like it was in the toilet, but I don't think it was in the it toilet. It was in the was cupboard. It? it was in the broom cupboard. <laughs> in the broom had a cupboard. window, though. Had a window. <laughs> and I, remember, I remember taking telephone calls uh, live on air once when I was, was around, your, yes. around your place doing Zodiac. And there was you and Piers... Me, a couple of other people, I think. Yeah. Piers always used to make fun of me because my list was lisp was more pronounced then. So the f- I used to give out the phone number six zero seven three nine zero six. Who was that hippie guy that you taped to the floor? I remember you taping him, <laughs> gaffer taping him to the floor. That was a good John story. the pet poet. John the That's, pet poet, exactly. Yeah. John Williams, bless him. Um, uh, he, he became nicknamed by Piers and all of us eventually the Vogon poet. He used to do the poetry spot. Um, it, it wasn't exactly, uh, you know, wasn't Wordsworth, uh, Wordsworth or Keats, um, but it was, you know, it was worthy, worthy, and we were putting poetry on the air, man, um, and um, but uh, they were not all good, so we called him the Vogon poet after the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Va- uh, Galaxy, and, and it was um, yeah, John that got um, got uh, bondaged in um, gaffer tape. Okay, we're going to leave Zodiac there for the minute because the next thing I want to talk about. Can um, I? Can I just? Um, Finishes. My father and myself always go off on tangents, but he always used to say, to cut a long story short and get back to the point, in that the FB keys, I, I somehow acquired an FB3 or, or one of the three keys, and I was broadcasting from my flat, an early broadcast before we went on the tower blocks, 
and it was meeting this person which got me onto the tower blocks. Um, he phoned up the number I was giving out um, in the flat where I was transmitting from, and it was Piers Easton, Chris Miles, and we were chatting, and you know, he'd heard me on the air, phoned in, and we started swapping, and I think he had an FB1 and an FB2, and I had the FB3, so we got together and we had a whole three uh, set of three keys, um, and then that was uh, meeting peers. Um, then things started to happen because then we had this ace engineer, this amazing whiz kid. He must have been about 15 years old at the time, building this state-of-the-art equipment, phase-locked loop transmitters, which were very stable. And then you got the um, started um, linking here and there, and then eventually going from 50 watts. We were talking about this earlier to 250 watts with a BLY. BLW seventy seven was the device of choice. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And and I remember Piers and I when we got out two hundred and fifty watts on the air, doing the power dance. We used to jump up and down and go power, power, power. I always wondered why you guys got out so well. Can I? Um, can I? Th you, this can be edited, Martin. If you don't wish this to be broadcast, can I tell a story about FB keys just very quickly? Martin got nicked with a bunch of keys, and on it was a handmade version of the FB3 and the police went through his key ring and they went through and said what's this key and he said oh that's my house key what's this key oh that's the back door key what's this key oh that's the key to the garage ah uh, now Mr Spencer we come to the pièce de résistance what's this key for it says FB on it and this martin said of course FB for bathroom <laughs> <laughs> very good it's true Quick and thinking. actually something you'll you'll appreciate mark that was outside the swiss cottage blocks Yes, uh, that's Fellows our stomping Road. ground, yes. Yeah, which was, which was not our site. That was uh, Piers' site, which he was using for LMR and... Uh, and Zodiac, Zodiac, because we yeah. use the same kit, LMR on Saturday nights and uh, Radio Zodiac on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And, of course, for the, uh, those who are listening, an FB key with the fire brigade keys, which gave us access to every single uh, to the roof of every single tower block in London, pretty much. Now available on eBay, but yeah. probably completely useless. Yes. Incidentally, fun fact, the FB3 was actually not the FB3. The one we called an FB3 didn't have a number. Oh. Because okay. now, the, the sets you can buy now on eBay, they've all got the number stamped on them. If I remember, the FB3 was slightly shorter than the FB1 and 2. Yeah, it was a much smaller key. Yeah. It was a padlock key. Yeah, yeah. okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, got, got us into <laughs> have, you got, have you gone key anorak now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> key anorak. Yes. I mean, no. I mean, the keys were... You know, all important. The, the, the fact that the London Fire Brigade probably had the power all the way going back to the fire of london that the london fire brigade had the power to mandate easy access to council roofs i mean that that was a huge opportunity in its own right and we're obviously we were very lucky yeah and obviously it did also in later years with the more commercial parts did get out of hand and it's probably lucky that they don't use those keys anymore well they used to brick in their rigs and all sorts of things yeah. but um the, um, you had to have a, a either a lazy or a friendly caretaker as well in the in the block preferably. But it, speaking of tower blocks, um, listening to previous episodes, people saying you know you can't walk around if you're an ex land based pirate and look at a clearing in the woods. Oh, um, it's so true. Thinking That's where you so could true. Well, as yeah. we came up today through uh, London, um, we were leaning out the window and annoying some of the passengers there, looking up at the tower blocks. And Martin was, this is where I installed this station, and that's where we had that station. And that's like a mini, mini Trellic Towers. So we all became tower block anoraks as well. P people who know wh wh where our journey was this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone um, remember Keith of Radio Alpha? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Keith, he, was, Keith, he was another key, key, uh, good engineer, uh, wasn't he? He was an excellent yeah, engineer, innovative. and he definitely pioneered microwave links, yes. stereo encoders. Yeah. He, had a, he did a lot of work on a frequency hopping link that actually changed its frequency on a regular basis, but I don't think was ever used. And he's still around. He's absolutely still around. Uh, I, this is one of the things that I've asked people about before, and it's hard to, hard to get a straight answer. Was, was it a case of you upped your game because raids were coming? Or was it a fact that you upped your game because you didn't want to get the raids, if that makes sense? Oh, you mean in terms of links? And yeah, that yeah. Kind I mean, it, it's, it's that whole um, sort of arms race thing, isn't it? Where Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. That's mainly good... not to get caught, basically. I think, yeah, I mean, obviously not getting caught was a fairly major component. I think broadcasting live gives you more of a buzz and more freedom in terms of what you can do, reduces the effort because you only have to do everything once instead of twice. So I think there were a number of drivers to that. Um, and as the raids began to build up in the 80s, as, the, as, as us as pirates began to expand and there were more and more, then obviously there had to be a response from the DTI and, and the, the number of raids did start increasing. I recall once when we transmitted, instead of Swiss Cottage, from quite a low block opposite us, so we could actually see the block from I remember that where block. we were transmitting from. I don't know if you remember that day, if you were there as well. Was it on the other side of Camden Road? The other yes. side, exactly. Yes. It's exactly. a little 12, 10 or 12 storey block. Exactly. I, I but know it was, the blocks. <laughs> but it was up on a hill, so it got out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, it was a good block. Yeah. And of course, we got busted that day, and we were able to actually watch them. They, they were quite vicious, actually. They, they sort of just smashed down smashed the aerial up. and yeah. broke things up and stuff. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it was allocation or whether it was a raid at Swiss Cottage. But after the bust, on our frequencies, our rig had gone off the air, I could hear the communications from the um, home office, and it would have been, not the DTI. It was, um, we used to call them the, it was the GPO, then the home office and the DTI responsible. So I think the home office at the time. We could hear their communications. Obviously, it was some sort of image on my receiver because they weren't, they weren't communicating on 94.4, which is where we were. So Piers took, took my cheap Dixon's print sound radio into the lab and sort of monitored and found out what the IF was. And you put worked. a signal generator on it and found out where they must be. Exactly. Piers mentioned it. this story, yeah. but he had he forgotten... Did. Yeah. That detail, which you've said, which yeah. I believe is probably quite correct. Oh, I remember it like like yeah. yesterday, but but we handled it pretty badly. We thought it was good because we had this free the airways campaign where we're all cooperating. So I thought, in my idealism at the time, let's tell everybody yeah. about it. So we, but we, but let's make a golden rule that if you you're listening to them, and it was down about I think it was from Euston Tower, and I think it was repeater. on a, it was on about eighty seven or below there exactly seventy there. something megahertz yeah. or eighty seven something like that. Yeah, and, and if you get busted, if, if, if you're going to get busted, don't go and save your rig. Just save your skins, of course. And I don't believe everyone followed that golden rule. And they soon worked out that we were actually listening. And it also transpired that I sport it for other people who had already known about it before we did. And we discovered it and went, hey, guys. Guess what we've found <laughs> yeah. in the spirit of comradeship. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, um, I, I, episode one of the podcasts, if you want to go and have a listen to it, is Piers Easton, and he talks about this, the, the, them finding the, uh, the frequency that they were doing their two-way communications. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a few tricks of our own 
the, uh, one of their tracking stations was just up the road from where Laurie was living, and they used a directional aerial to get a bearing from there. And we could see whether it, was mo whether it had moved or whether it hadn't moved. So generally, we would swing by there on a Friday evening or a Saturday and have a look. And, well, actually, yeah, Laurie's going to fill in on well, this. I was just to say, you could also see whether the gates were locked or unlocked. And we knew that if the gates were locked, they weren't out in that area. But when the gates were unlocked, we knew to be careful. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we all had our tricks, and I think we all shared intelligence such as it was. Um, and, yeah, we probably weren't terribly clever about how we went about it. But, well, uh, I, again, I, we weren't spies. We were pirate radio people you know we were, we were let's all say our acts come on, we can say it now can't we yeah we can, <laughs> we can all hold our hands up to that yeah. well well i have said this on the podcast before i, I never mean that word as, as an insult to anybody i think it's actually a, uh, badge, a of of honor. badge of honor exactly that was the word i was looking for badge of honor uh, and i've got no issue with people calling me an anorak now thank you very much and it's now of course uh, a, a common word for anybody who's obsessed by anything i think badge, <laughs> yeah. badge of honor for me yeah for me as well okay so how long was Alice's on for, and, and how big did it expand in the end? You know, hours wise, and well, yes, power I mean, and all the other. We were stuff. doing Saturday nights. I remember, uh, I remember when the eighty-four Telecom Act came in. Uh, we were still doing Saturday nights at that point, and for a while, when the Act first came in, we went to a biscuit tin link and a cassette player, just like the kind of like the old days of Fields. And we were linking from there to our block just in case they came after, you know, the source of the link, which I guess would have been a UHF link, you know, a la Piers, that Piers had pioneered. Were they difficult for them to track? Uh, I would have thought not. Not at all. Not at all. No. Um, they had spectrum analyzers. They probably had Doppler, uh, Doppler DFing sets, which literally gave them a visual indication of which direction. So not particularly difficult, although... If they had had to track one of those in a field at night, then, yeah, it would have been quite difficult, quite costly. And what would they have got? A biscuit tin link and a cassette player. And we would have, you know, the chance of them apprehending anyone would have been close to zero. But that only lasted literally for a few weeks. And I think, after, you know, as, as the first few weeks turned into a month plus, nobody, nobody was getting busted. We very quickly then went back to um in fact think about in the early days laurie you may remember this in the early days of 1982 and 1983 how many of those were done from studios and how many were pre-recorded i remember we had a reel-to-reel -reel, a la rfl up at trowbridge estate for a few weeks which the uh which the dti by or the, or the home office uh, took great delight in dropping from the top onto the floor from below the lift, and smashing yeah, the lift. it into, a, into many, many pieces. It was a lovely old ferrograph or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I remember that. Very, very that nice belonged to my grandmother. Kit. She had donated yeah, that. Uh, quite, quite often transmission times would be dictated by how much you could get on, on a reel. one roll of tape running at one and seven-eighths inches per second. I think, again, there was someone from RSL, was it Kenny Myers? I can't remember. One of them was on the series earlier saying about how they even slowed it down and modified the reels so they could get yeah, a whole Sunday. That was either, uh, um, yeah, um, Mark, Mark Ashton. Mark Ashton. Mark Ashton. Yeah. Mark Ashton. That they that they even, that they even extended the spool <laughs> yes. to get more tape on there so that they could get an entire day's broadcast on one tape. We, uh, used, we used my Akai initially, which had that 
a cutoff. When the tape ran out, it switched off the tape machine and our rig was plugged in through the mains of the tape machine so it would turn off the rig as well at the end of the transmission. Our timer was uh, was a little bit more prosaic than that. We had we found a shop in Edgware Road that sold old uh, cooker kitchen timers where you could switch the cooker on remotely. <laughs> well, you the know the old work. yeah we, the old we used, uh, we Belling Lees Belling Lees that had a timer the, for the oven. So you could yeah. leave it to set, turn on at a particular time and, and clockwork. Turn off clockwork, literally very, clockwork, very reliable. But I think to, to answer your question, I think most of the broadcasts were live. And uh, credit where credit is due, Martin. Part of it was that some of the links were pretty crafty, like uh, linking two tower blocks together through the TV system. Uh, so when we'll, they we'll came, come to, on to that. when they came that to was take later. it away, it was a bit that was later. But also bouncing the UHF signal off another tower block so that it actually didn't go in a direct line to the site. It uh, literally went back literally on itself. It went back on itself. That did work. I can vouch for the fact that works. You can do that on course, UHF. Linking technology enabled um, some great outside broadcasts. I remember a couple that we did, and influenced probably by Thameside Radio and their broadcasts. I, th- I think the one I remember was you did stuff from the Zigzag Club in Notting Hill, didn't there you? There was a Zigzag Club, that. exactly. Um, that was uh, this is this is Radio Zodiac. If people were the FM Radio, and didn't Zodiac that go through about. about eight hops of link? So when you switched off the sending end, it went. Psh, psh, psh. <laughs> Which was that, one squelch after another cutting in, yeah? That would have probably been the one from the Wembley Conference Centre where we were invited to have a free the airwaves stand at the um, CB show that year, which Tony Blackburn opened. And when he walked past the stand, he went, oh, no, not more bloody pirates, and walked on. <laughs> but we, him. But, but we'd, we'd had, I think, about 10 watts of FM to get out of the conference centre through the walls up to a local tower block, which linked on to our Swiss, uh, which was local to Wembley, which linked to Swiss Cottage. And it was all fully remote in that you could turn it on and off from the original transmission. And we had Nick Turner from Inner City Unit uh, playing live from there. And we had a tiny, tiny little um, um, print sound microphone or, or Tandy microphone, which we were using to pick up his sax. And the quality was beautiful. I remember those. They were pressure zone mics, weren't they? Those ah, Tandy right. mics, yes. which you could actually mount on a wall to eliminate a whole set of reflections and they worked remarkably they were cheap weren't they they were like yes. 10 quid and they worked amazingly they were yeah. great and anyway, so that was I think go. that was a, a joint broadcast we did Zigzag Club was one where we again we had in a, in a city unit Nick Turner playing along with Amazulu and a few other um, uh, great there's, there's a great photo of you all, on, all sitting backstage at the Zigzag Club oh please send that to me I haven't yes. seen that one yeah, there I'd is love there. to see that yeah I'll find it for but you but I, I do remember you know we were we were all it was for Benefit for Free the Airwaves and the Stonehenge campaign as well, the, the free festival at Stonehenge. And it was pretty far out. But the thing was, we forgot to collect money. There was no one at the door collecting money as people came in. Um, and all the bands were doing it for expenses. And, and uh, Lemmy came in at one time as well um, to see his mate Nick Turner. And um, so my sister came along and said, there's no one at the, at, the, at, at the door. And so she got a bucket out and started collecting pennies. My friend Cosmic Steve um, uh, said, hey man, we've got a problem with um, the reggae band, Misty and Roots, I think it was, um, and can you help me out? So I, I just went back and they had their manager there and the big burly chaps, and they were saying, you know, we want it for expenses, but, you know, expenses is, is this much. And I went in there with just a bucket of pennies and said, I'm sorry, this is all we've got. And we, we got away with it. It wasn't the most successful gig in the world, but it was great fun. It was great fun. And the last OB I'd, I'd, I'd like to mention, um, 
that we did. We did the Zigzag Club. There was the CB exhibition. It was a joint, literally, uh, broadcast with DBC and our radio, which uh, Yusuf and I um, and Richard Barbrook um, mainly put together, along with um, Lepke from uh, DBC at the Notting Hill Carnival. And we had a live link to um, a roving microphone, an FM link, up to the um, studio in All Saints Road. And that was just an amazing event. And we had a Free the Airwaves banner on the link dipole that we'd, uh, we'd hold up in the street. And I just remember, I mean, I remember going on the air and I was pretty stoned um, at the time, uh, being in such company and such an event. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, I couldn't keep, get my shit together. But it was, I was just trashed on the floor. And, and I've got photos uh, uh, to, 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 to prove it as well. Brilliant. But it was a fantastic, and it was great. We could hear the music we were playing just vibrating from the houses around us through the wall. Everyone was listening at the time. It was the DBC, our radio, and Zodiac. And uh, Yusuf... Um, uh, uh, yeah, big, big shout out. And actually, yeah. you've provided the answer to the question I asked Laurie. You've now reminded me that uh, Yusuf's place was the base for all sorts of studios in various different places. He had a flat in Leytonstone early on, and then later on, which Invicta broadcast from for many weeks, with their mobile setup, which was like a disco setup with the old BSR decks in a wooden chassis and a Tandy mixer. And, uh, yeah, I remember all of their guys you know, pouring into that flat and Yusuf and Janet putting up with it all some you know i mean it was all obviously it was all very nice but it must have been quite disruptive to their personal lives and and in fact they in fact they provided in that Leytonstone flat the base for a lot of alice's uh, studio base for a lot of alice's broadcast so big up use of and thanks for building all the rigs as well because i've heard several people say oh yeah martin used to build all the rigs which was true at one point but certainly at other times when i wasn't around Yusuf you know, was a major figure and, and helps all sorts of stations. Oh, there's no doubt yeah. about that at all. And and uh, I have requested uh, an audience with him. That would be uh, good. By his yeah. management. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Janet, hi, Janet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Janet. I was just going to say, it's also worth adding that he was one of the few people that was re- willing to stand in a cold phone box for a very, very long while and answer the early calls on Phoenix. That phone box that you talked about earlier at the top of your road, he stood there for hours and nobody else wanted to do it oh. the phone box um, session the drafty <laughs> phone box <laughs> well we've, we've all we've all lived that life haven't we it wasn't just drafty was it people used to piss it well yeah. I, I, I think they were I, I I used to introduce the podcast as were you someone who stood in a phone box or was in a lift where there was uh, questionable hygiene standards I think <laughs> okay that's a very nice way of putting it yeah. well uh, I was trying trying to make it sound nice um, right okay so Alice so I mean I think I think we've done the link technology now and how uh, extreme is that the right word I don't know it all became in the end and, well and I mean we didn't really cover some of the tri- I mean there were a lot of tricks actually mm. I think didn't, um, I think by the time I left in October 82 we'd, we were on to microwave already if I, uh, I think uh, or, you or guys came in soon were, after, yeah. But I think we, we tended to go, rather than technology, we were more down the route of sites and clever things to do at sites. Yeah. So the first idea was we had a two-hop link where the first hop was on the second harmonic of the FM. So that if anybody heard it, including the DCI, they'd probably think, oh, another pirate with a harmonic. But it was actually the, the first little half-watt um, hop to, the, to a midpoint. That was our first one. And then the other one, which, which served us very well for many years, 
when we were broadcasting from Colin's place um, was there were two tower blocks that only had one communal aerial. And so there was a, a cable link from block one to block two and then another distribution amp in block two that then fed all the flats in block two. So we put our midpoint in block two. I installed a little leak of just poking a bit of wire into the coax before and after the amp. So it provided a path backwards through the amp such that we then injected our signal from Collins flat into the communal system <laughs> in the block on a frequency that wasn't being used. And that was the occasion that Colin has mentioned when we were in his flat and we could see them waiting for us at the wrong block, at block two, which was opposite. And we were meanwhile continuing to broadcast and bringing our records in in carrier bags and rucksacks so that, you know, because it was all LPs in those days, there were no CDs or maybe, yeah, no, no I think CDs, CDs yeah, are no, yet G to be even be invented at that they're point. They're about to be invented. To yeah. be marketed at that point. Yeah. Um, by doing that, we achieved never having a studio road. And the same later when that, we engineered for Kiss, that we never lost a studio. That was that was my that was my next question to both of you: Is did you ever lose a studio? Was there ever a studio raid in any of your uh, experiences? Obviously, Martin's now said no. So well, Mark, no one no one ever got nabbed on Zodiac FM in London or LMR, um, Piers's version of LMR, Chris Miles. Um, no one ever got nabbed. The closest was seeing those blokes on the block opposite us. And I think it must have been that time we ho overheard them because of their proximity. That's why they, they broke in on, on the IF. I think that's when I did my stint on Zodiac, yeah. when you were going from that block, yes. the other side of Camden Road, because you were right. one side, weren't you, and the block was the yeah. other side. Yeah, we also used that, um, before I moved up to London, we also used that apartment, because my sister was in it beforehand, and um, we used it for a, a radio celebration, AM transmission, because there was a big bit of green behind us. Yeah. It? So it, be it became quite, quite famous. And we ha also, we had the Brecknock Pub, which is a great live music venue, just around the corner as well. Anybody in this room, did you ever get Well, there's a, raid, there's a raid you know about at um, Shoestring, where I think Alice's was sharing a studio with Shoestring, and Shoestring got busted. Wait, wait, which and studio was that? Because they had about 10 different studios. Uh, I, do, I don't know that much about it, to be quite honest, but I remember our, we had had our entire record library there, which was crates and crates of records we'd been sent, and that they had been moved out the day before. I don't know by what clever cleverness or coincidence they'd been moved out the day before. Uh, but I think it was Shoestring that got raided. Right. By, I yeah. think it was shoestring. I, I, I've been told. I've been told that it was the carpet shop in St James's Street. Okay, and that I broadcast from that studio as well a couple of times. I didn't know Alice was using it as well. To be honest, uh, it was quite late in my pirate radio broadcasting uh, life. But my, um, I mean, there are there are quite a few funny stories about shoestring, which that Danny tells a couple of good ones. Uh, sorry, Mark. <laughs> my closest shave must have been on the medium wave in Crawley, and the station was called Radioactivity, by the way. I never got round to answering that question. Right. Um, the um, AM and FM in Crawley was uh, Radioactivity, and we were, I was on the front page, and they came and busted us. And this guy Paul, who had been in the phone box came back at the end of the transmission, and I'm wondering even if they followed him back from the phone box, because it's strange to get busted at the end of a transmission. We were taking up the earth rods, taking down the aerial, packing up, and suddenly there were... Paul had arrived, um, uh, he was our phone box guy, briefly before, and Kevin Turner was with us uh, by then as well, Peter McFarlane, and, um, and there was Andy Green and myself. I don't think Andy Linton was on site with us that day, and we saw four guys walking purposefully down the glade 
uh, with this uh, clearing in the woods. And Andy Green suddenly shouted, quick, leg it, run for it. And, you know, the car battery gets discarded immediately. We throw the, I think we threw the AM rig in some bushes and it must have survived because you ended up with it eventually. And, um, and Kevin and I run across the road and hid under in a ditch under some bushes. And the other two guys got nabbed, Andy Green and Paul Gruitt, and they eventually paid a 150 quid fine at Eastbourne. Um, but uh, we were there for about two hours. And at one point, um, they actually walked past us. You know, where are these pliers? We can't find them. And we're holding our breath. And we waited a good time afterwards until we thought the coast was clear and went out on the road and saw Kevin's Green Mini there and no other cars were there anymore. So we, we went and, and just drove home. And that you asked about what my parents thought. You know, I came home white as a sheet and late. And my mum said, you know, what's up? What's going on? And I told her we got busted. And she said, oh, good, you, you didn't get caught and everything. So, you know, very supportive. But that was my closest shave with the law, I think. I've heard a story. Now, I don't know, I, it, it might well have been you. During the print workers' strike at Wapping, and you were on a tower block there, and the lift door opened, and they were standing in front of you, or something like that. Yeah. I, I, please elaborate, because I, I only heard half this story. Well, as I recall, um, I had taken peers to visit our transmitter site that was in a tower block in Whitechapel. And we had been, for some reason, we had just been anoraking, chatting about things, as you do. I mean, on, this was about two o'clock in the morning or three in the morning, on site, you know, actually just standing right underneath the aerial, just going, oh, yeah, remember that block? Yeah, look at that block. Yeah, that's where you saw XYZ. It was that kind of conversation. And we'd been up there about half an hour. Anyway, at that point, I can't remember the background, why we did this, I've no idea. But maybe it was just, you know, to show another engineer what we were up to. Can't remember. But, yeah, I remember coming. We got into the lift, came down to the ground floor. And as we got out of one lift, there was two of them getting into the other lift to go and bust us. And I actually, I can't remember. I think it was John Garlic was one of them. I don't, it wasn't Gotts. I can't remember who else it might have been. But anyway, there were two of them there. And they looked at us and we looked at them. And then we walked rapidly. I remember doing a kind of John Cleese walk away from the block as they, and they just looked at us and then continued. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, we were off. That block was fascinating. And you and I were up it uh, around that same time and we were watching the rioting going on at the print works. And we're sitting there and we're watching it and the transmitter's on and we're sitting, we're watching it. And that's one of us kind of looks over at the next door block and on the next door block, there's a pile of policemen with binoculars and, and they're monitoring the strike, at which point we thought, probably time to go. But it's interesting, you know, they could have picked the other block, but fortunately they picked the next door one. I've got another quick story. There's only one left now. They've knocked one of them down. The two white blocks in Whitechapel. One day on a Sunday morning, we were broadcasting away and every few minutes psh, it would go off and then it would come back and then it would go off. And I don't know why, but we were highly suspicious. We we're like, this does not seem like the normal behaviour of, you know, some kind of technical trouble. So I remember at that point I was on a motorbike and I remember thinking, oh, there's something fishy going on here. I'm going to be a bit careful. And I went up the next door block so I could look, which is the one that Laurie just mentioned with the coppers on it, you know, at a different time, you know, probably a year earlier had been looking at whopping. So I decided to go up that block and look across to the next door one, which was only 
probably 150 yards away from the first one. And sure enough, I could see two of them up there on the roof, pulling the mains in and out of the rig. Oh. So they, they never got us. They never got us. There's, I mean, we've obviously had false alarms, all of us. I mean, remember on a shortwave site when we'd moved from my bedroom to the fields around Crawley um, and, and did remote broadcasts. I remember one day in November that we were there for the tape change and suddenly this car pulls up and this guy gets out and we all think, oh, shit, we're about to get busted. But he just stands there. So, you know, our tape d delay is changed, is delayed. Our tape change is delayed. And he, after two minutes, he gets back in the car and drives off. And we suddenly look, ah, oh, it's the 11th of November, or, the cl or, or closest to, it's Remembrance Sunday. And he had got out and respected the two-minute silence, which we accidentally did because he delayed our tape change by two minutes. So it looked like we were respecting Remembrance Sunday. And other times people, oi, what are you up to here in this field? Oh, recording birdsong was a favourite excuse that you'd be doing. There's a microphone suspended in the air. Yeah, Mark, tell your story about, about trying to fob off this radio amateur who had DF'd you. And you, were, you came up with the story that the valves were collecting atmospheric samples. I see well, I, I remember between the, between the two of us, we came up with a few things. I remember you used to write on the rig QMW or QM University, something for Queen Mary University, to try and make out that it was some sort of birdsong recording equipment. Um, oh, blimey. Talking to radio amateurs, I, we did get all our equipment taken one week, uh, which, again, I talked about on the podcast. Uh, when we were up by Woodford New Road by a guy. Yeah, that was the site. And I think that was immediately after he'd come and spoke. You were hanging around on site probably to do a tape change. He had come and asked what was going on. You'd given him this absolute bullshit about birds. <laughs> about, no, about, about taking samples of the atmosphere with the aerial <laughs> wire. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, he'd gone away and gone, right, that's it. I'm, yeah, not, I'm not that much I think he it. knew exactly what we were up to, to be brutally honest. Um, yeah, the other one was, was the the off-duty policeman who, um, uh, if, if you remember, uh, Graham, uh, John Scott, and he, he was doing the tape changes and uh, the guy just walked up and he said, I know exactly what you're up to. I'm going to disappear and come back in an hour and I don't want you to be here. So we switched wow. off and took everything away. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, off-duty copper. So, you know, I, I don't think he was that interested, really. Got stopped as well. Um, again, with all our equipment on, a, we used to have a go kart that we used to pull everything around on. I remember got that go kart. <laughs> <laughs> got stopped by a policeman as well with all that stuff, and eventually I just said, "Yeah, that's what it is." He went, "Oh, go home." <laughs> just one other one, Mart. Uh, Havering Atty Bower. Oh yeah, where you got caught up the top of the rig, uh, up the top of the block with your rig, and you said it was amateur radio, and I talked the hind legs. Oh no, that, that was Whalebone Lane. Whalebone Lane. Well, yeah. I beg its pardon. I thought it was yeah. Havering, but but yeah, you know they they. I'm sure they absolutely <coughs> knew what we were up to, but we kind of sweet talked our way. I, out of I it. remember you sweet talking a WPC, talking about her walkie-talkie and saying, "Oh, what's that? What do you do with that?" And actually, successfully got her into a conversation about walkie-talkies. Meanwhile, I had the link receiver wrapped up in in a jumper, so I had this sort of square jumper that I was holding, which we had just rescued from the block. And I was absolutely sure that I was busted, but they never asked me. You know, Laurie was doing such a good distraction job that they never even asked me, what's this square jumper you're carrying? Ridiculous. Right, we're, we're, we're going to move on now. Mark, I need to know what happened to Radio Zodiac in the end and what did you do after that? Our demise, yes. Well, the first step in our demise 
was when I got chucked out of the council flat I shouldn't be in. My sister had been living there legitimately, which is where we did the celebration broadcast from. And when I moved in there, obviously, I should have kept uh, low profile. But, of course, we had all these um, hippies and punks, and <laughs> it was a bit like, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> coming up to the flat. And, um, and, and, you know, rock artists as well. Remember, we had Kirk Brandon was up there. Um, um, we had uh, um, from Madness, Mark Bedders, uh, and um, Bonsai Forest, which Paul Whitehouse, a comedian, used to be in. Um, you know, we had, used to go down the Eagle Pub in Camden, which was where um, Clive Langer used to hang out um, and uh, a lot of the Madness and Stiff Records crew and sort of take our pick um, at Sunday lunchtime, bring them back for an afternoon live transmission. Scritty Bolitti were another one of them as well. So I got chucked out, basically, also because I wasn't paying rent. You know, I was a, <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd dropped out of uh, Polly at this time. I'd been working in Carnaby Street as a DJ um, after I'd left Mark Suspenser's Austin Reed. I got fired from Carnaby Street because um, Hippie Steve was supposed to put on this opening show of this brand new display in the shop. Was that that Cascade? Cascade, exactly, yeah. exactly. With the, yeah, with the legs that went up and the can-can legs. Yeah. yeah, and I'd be playing all this what I thought was cool music. And he'd say, you know, come on and play this sort of Euro disco, which worked. He was right. Alan was clever. Anyway, I got fired after that uh, debacle because um, the show was basically taking the mickey out of uh, capitalism and Alan, you know, sort of magicians who would, um, couldn't do any magic tricks and jugglers who had dropped their balls. They were, there, um, they were literally taking the piss. So I got fired that next day. And... I got chucked out of the flat. So, you know, I'd lost my girlfriend. I'd sort of lost my job. I'd lost my flat. And because of the Our Radio people, they got me into this um, Squat Come Housing Association place in Shoot Up Hill in Kentish Town, which was because um, I'd got involved with Our Radio by then. They'd heard that Zodiac were doing more interesting things um, and they wanted an into the pirate radio um, themselves. And so they got me a flat in Shoot Up Hill, in a, a room in a, in, a, in a block there. I jumped the queue. Um, and literally, it was, Shoot Up Hill was perfectly named because down in the basement we had heroin dealers. And we marked all our records with a Z, which is out of fashion these days, but at the time stood for Zodiac. And I'd go down the record and tape exchange and find, find them there. I marked records there because they'd been nicked by the, um, the junkies in the basement. And... Um, so it was a precarious time, shall we say, but also an interesting time. My sister used to bring me round sort of Red Cross parcels of cooked roast chickens, which I'd all eat while making gay waves or whatever it was. And it couldn't last that long in that situation. Um, and I thought, what am I going to do? And then the phone, which was in the name of Ned Kelly, um, rang one day. Um, the phone used to be registered in various bogus names until they got cut off and they get re-registered. Um, and it was a call from Pete Twist at Radio Nova International in Italy. I'd always dreamed of working for this station. You know, I've got Italian roots, so working in Italy was a great idea, and I followed their free radio scene. It was anarchy over there. And it was on the border with the south of France, broadcasting in English to the south of France. It had roots in offshore pirate radio, um, Radio North International, R&I, Radio Nova International, set up by A.J. Burns and some of his friends. And I didn't do anything about going there. But Kevin Turner, who'd given me many breaks, he'd take me over to Ireland um, for a couple of weeks the year before, 
Um, he'd gone to work there and someone had got fired. And they were fired because, sadly, Princess Grace had died in a car crash. And this DJ had said on the air that um, the rumour, and it was just a rumour, that Princess Stephanie had been driving. And you don't say that on the air. Advertising was from Monaco and places like that. And he got fired, and they needed a replacement quickly. The phone rings, and um, within three days, I'd sold my bicycle to get the train ticket. Uh, said bye-bye to everyone and got on the train down to the south of France. Now, the last night was memorable um, because we were involved with the Our Radio people and Zodiac had done interesting things. The women from the Green and Commons Peace Camp came on. We had poetry specials with Attila the Stockbroker. Mikey Smith, the West Indian uh, poet um, who sadly passed away, uh, was there. And Hethcott Williams as well. Um, so we're doing all these interesting things, a lot of it down to... Um, Cosmic Steve, and um, who introduced me to Tony Allen as well, and uh, where, where I met him at an International Times uh, event where everyone was smoking, uh, taking in hippie, hippie crack, um, laughing gas before it became fashionable. Um, anyway, that last night we did a live broadcast to say bye bye to me, and I was, I was going for a month's trial. I said, I'm only going for a month, I'll be back, I'll be back. And what they did, they got over the um, the protesters having a vigil outside the South African embassy against apartheid got them in a taxi. They left one there so this 24-hour vigil could be maintained. And they came over and, you know, we're smoking joints and broadcasting live and putting over. I remember one of the, you know, electro-hip-hop was just starting and, and, and um, one of the first, uh, Planet Rock, I think it was, we were broadcasting at the time. Richard was a big fan of that New York scene. <laughs> and um, they came over and sang South African peace songs in the air as a sort of tribute to me leaving, which was very, very moving. And then it was, it was just like moving to another life. I just left that behind and ended up starting a new life in the south of France. Apparently I passed the audition because 40 years later I was, I was still down there and there are many other stories. But, you know, that was a life-changing thing for me. And I left just before the loophole, Radio Jackie had found the loophole in the law which allowed all of you guys to go 24-7. Um, but there I was in this weird ancient principality of Saborga overlooking Monaco in the south of France. Uh, broadcasting in very much a kind of pirate vein there with Kevin Turner, uh, Grant Benson. There was Andy Howard, another a great engineer um, and a real character. Roland Butter, I think he called himself on Caroline. They were all down there. And that was just, you know, uh, never looked back really. But when I was there, I remember seeing an article in an interview. I think it was with um, either OK Jive, one of these bands, or Amazulu that were promoted um, in Music Week saying, oh, we got airplay on Radio Zodiac and we're really pleased about it. And I thought, wow, you know, we did make an impact a little bit. And yeah. I, I got a nostalgic thing to go back. But that was, I think, the only time. Because it was like doing pirate radio, but legally, um, down there with Radio Nova International. I okay. bet, I bet 100 kilowatts CRP didn't, didn't do any harm either. Some people called it a megawatt. It was, um, it was a, <laughs> Whatever it was, it was a lot. It was a, well, 5K, I think it was run about 3K into um, eight, uh, two parallel uh, poles of eight element Yagis. So 16, 16 five element Yagis, was it, um, in, in two stacks of two? It was like a rifle shot down the coast. Yeah. yeah. It's powerful. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, you did ask. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that, that's that's absolutely fine. That's my leaving story. And 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 that's and that's where you are. To this day, I assume, still in well, um, Italy, b- south of France? Yes, I'm, I'm back and forth at the moment. I've got a partner over here. I've got caring duties as well, but I've not abandoned um, being down there. I go back there often for gigs, events, and as I've mentioned earlier, I've got a, a media project, a digital multimedia project, which is okay. online radio, video, and you know, articles and stuff. And you're doing programmes for Radio Caroline as well? Yes, that's another story as well, how I, ne- how I didn't get onto Caroline, but nearly did. But... Um, but yeah, but I did eventually, and I absolutely love it. So proud to be involved with Radio Caroline, and you know, as we know, it gives you the freedom within certain realms of um, to play what you like. Brilliant. And I mean, I have to say, you know, that Radio Caroline, you know, that the being on the BBC World Service Mars, you know, that's another irony and full circle job of being on their frequency and on their mast and covering. Pretty much an area that we used to cover with 10K from the Miamigo or Federicia, um, uh, a similar area, is, 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 is brilliant, you know. Alice's, what happened <laughs> in ah, the end? Okay, well, I, I can hardly follow what, I mean, that's brilliant, Mark. Very, very interesting. And a lot of that later stuff I didn't know about. Um, so, yeah, the end of Alice's, I mean, it's always difficult to know how how these things come about and obviously you know i have my own perspective but it may you know other people may have other perspectives but i remember certain things i remember a certain dj who will remain nameless playing a certain track which was probably bordering on satanist on a sunday afternoon and that call and i remember thinking i heard it go out i had a little portable radio with me i was with my girlfriend at the time I heard it go out and I thought, oh, no, that's it. We're going to get busted for sure. And sure enough, about an hour and a half later, psh, off. Um, so there was a few things, you know, I'm not, I'm not linking the two directly, but there were some things like that that happened that weren't ideal. And then there came a point where we just got absolutely hammered. We got busted. I think it was five or six weeks in a row, every time near the beginning of the broadcast. So I literally had spent... You know, bear in mind, there's always prep involved. There's always finding new sites. I'd spent probably two months doing almost nothing but Alice's work. And to cap it all off, we weren't really getting our broadcasts out because we were getting busted so early. This was Sundays by then. We were getting busted so early in the day. that, to be honest, I just didn't have the time or the energy to continue with it. So I have to say, in that way... That was a victory for them. That was one they won. That, uh, yeah, those raids were effective. And if they're sufficiently concentrated, they, they actually had the desired effect. We did come back for one broadcast. I think it was some years later. It was probably two years later. We came back for one final broadcast, which for some reason, yeah, I remember Yusuf built the rig for that kindly. Um, didn't get out terribly well. And of course, by that time, no one was expecting us to be on anyway. Um, so at that point, it just seemed to come to a natural conclusion where, you know, there was paid work to be doing for other pirates that was enabling us to make to make ends meet and keep going. And Alice's, I think, had, it was a combination. It had also gone as far as it could go. Yeah. You know, we had, we'd got to the stage of doing Sunday from, I think, 9 or 10 in the morning through to midnight which was about as much as we could manage. I don't think we really, you know, whereas most stations in those days were going 24-7, we didn't really have enough 
uh, resources and enough people to I th- do that. I, uh, one of the things so, that I've spoken to people about the 24-7 stations is that they are run as businesses. You know, you cannot do it. Skyline, you know, I spoke to Ivor about our Skyline and he was particularly asked to do particular programmes on Skyline. Then he had to go and do a day's work as well. And I, th- I just think money-wise and corralling that many people is always an issue, I think, especially if you're not paying them either. That's, that's, yeah, that's, and I, I always thought, I, it always seemed to me, and I, this is, again, just a personal observation and may, may not be correct, but it seemed to me that the soul music scene got behind their stations very much so, and maybe it was because we didn't reach out enough, but, cert- you know, we did reach out to a few uh, record shops and we got some support, but we didn't get enough support to take it 24 hours. It's worth adding one other, one other thing about those raids. Uh, remember, that was at the time when Capital Radio started to do its split service and it did its rock service on FM. And there was an article in The Sun about how uh, Capital Radio was doing a good impersonation of Alice's Restaurant. And when I read that, I thought, ooh, that's not going to do us much good. And sure enough, then a whole load of raids came one after the other because we were treading on the toes of Capital Radio. And I, I'm as certain as I can be that that is why those raids took place. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten all about that. And you're quite right. I think Cap- Capital, I think we had pioneered that market to a certain extent and it was successful. There was a big response and therefore Capital decided I th- to I th- to also that. think that there was an awful lot of, um, with, with the ILR stations, because I know that Mercury... Uh, down in Surrey were one of the main reasons that Jackie eventually had to leave the air because Mercury just said they're stealing all our advertising. Yeah, I think they literally said they're stealing our listeners, which was quite hilarious. And and all the money that they were making And obviously, I I think now, having seen the legit side of the industry, you can understand that a bit more, that they had all the cost base, you know, that that licensing involved. And it was unfair competition in some ways. It was. And if you listen to the interview we did with uh, with Nick Catford, you'll realise that Jackie were running as a business and they were paying union rates and they were happy to pay the, you know, the MCPS and all that stuff. It was just refused. The thing was that the IBA at the time insisted um, on very high technical standards, which of course Jackie didn't have, yeah. but didn't need. A load of unnecessary stuff. And, yeah. the, and the rental for the transmitters and all the other stuff, which, which uh, ILR stations had to pay out huge amounts of money for what pirates were doing for pennies, really. So after... Alice's finishes. What's your next move after that? Where did you? Well, it, things worked out very nicely in that Piers um, had had got very busy with all sorts of things, and in fact, I, I something I didn't know at the time, but I heard in the interview that you did with him, had actually been threatened by a pirate customer, which had caused him to think, okay, that's it, that's enough. I'm going to do something else. Um, so, he, and he at that point had started about two years previously, Kiss FM with Tosca and George Power, uh, Kiss FM in London, which was his uh, soul station, which, of course, as we all now know, was the one that went on to get the licence and become legit and become a big deal. Um, so at that point, after, after what happened to Piers, he had actually offered the engineering of Kiss to myself and Laurie. 
and said, look, I don't want to do this. He didn't mention that he'd been threatened with a knife. He said, I, I don't want to do this well, anymore. Do you guys want to do it? I don't think that um, was necessarily connected with Kiss. I think it was connected with another station. Oh, yes, but, indeed. No, that's yeah. correct. I yeah. think, you know, Kiss was quite a nice, you know, mm. it was a friendly, nice setup. But, but I it, think he decided to get, get away from everything at yes, that point. Yes, at that point he realised. And, you know, we none of us were getting any younger, you know, and I think he realised sooner than most. He's a clever bloke. And, he, you know, he realised that he had a skill there that he should you know, that he should make something of. And so he decided to move on. So at that point, myself and Laurie initially were doing uh, some engineering for KISS and did a lot of building rigs, building links and, you know, running up and down tower blocks. And subsequently, we got various other people to help us with that. The Honourable Tim, who shall have a mention, Hippie Tim, uh, who was a great engineer and a great site guy um, and is now living in the West Midlands, I believe, still. Um, so we got that, and then, of course, it wasn't all that long. I don't know how long it was, probably about four years. KISS went off the air for a year and then actually managed to get a license. So then at that point, uh, we built their first studios in Holloway Road with a lot of help from a guy called Steve Grocott, who was also a pirate, had been involved in some of Gary Stevens' efforts from his tower block in Edmonton, Lance Radio Lance Christmas. Lance Lot House. <laughs> yes. Lot House, 11th floor. Yeah. yeah. Voice of Peace. <laughs> Oh, and right. Voice of Peace, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we just transitioned. And then, of course, RSLs came along. I think the very first RSL was at Greenbelt in about 85, which was Norman McLeod, and I don't know who else was involved in that, but it was, I think Norman was heavily involved in obtaining that first licence. And we certainly did, myself and Laurie did the first AM uh, RSL in London, which was for Thamesmead Radio, and that became a line of business. Hmm. So, yeah, we just we went legit, basically. And you're still in, in the broadcasting sure. business now? I am. I am, yep, still doing it now, building equipment, providing DAB services to smaller stations in London. So we're now broadcasting Resonance, Rinse, Represent, um, oh, about 25 of them. Radio Caroline, too. And Caroline, yeah, which is an honour. I'm going to go to my last questions now, okay? Can I just put a coda in about, <laughs> yeah, go on, go about Zodiac? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I left in October 82 for Nova in uh, Italy, and it did continue, I think, through until about, stumbled until about May 1983, um, when, thanks to Cosmic Steve and Mike Standing and a few of the other team, they did carry on with Zodiac. But I think it was the same blitz of, um, of raids, probably provoked by the presence of our radio uh, being frequently on the air, that... Um, that um, led to their demise in the end as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, our radio were overtly, I would say, almost both anarchist and left-wing left in many ways. And, of course, those were the days of the Thatcher government where a wing of that government was seriously worried about any... Um, what did them in, I think, was an interview with a leading IRA member. And at the time, um, Thatcher had put a gag on IRA right. in the media. Right. Um, and uh, they they put out this very controversial interview with um, uh, a leading terrorist, basically. And uh, they were <laughs> literally hunted down. Yeah, and you you mentioned Nick Turner. After my, after my time, I might admit. Right. You mentioned Nick Turner earlier. Of course, didn't Hawkwind have a, an album called Urban Gorilla? which featured in the artwork, it had a guitar which was also an AK-47. So I think, you know, we forget now, you know, what sensitivity there was then. And, and you know, for instance, Radio Dynamite yeah, apparently well, got raided for the... Because you, you know there's a book 
the guy that uh, Arnold Levine. Yes. Uh, I've read the book. You've seen the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yes. guess everybody's read the book. Banned Band by the BBC. Great. It's called Banned yeah. by the BBC. Yeah. 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 Con- Concord, I think, was one of the biggest influences on, on what I uh, went out to do. This. Well, well, I am lining oh. up interviews with people from those stations. Yeah. So, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, Fantastic. they're all on the way. I'm in, in, in conversation. But I think Arnold said that he believed that they got a lot of raids purely based on the name. That was the degree of sensitivity that mm. there was. Nothing to do with the fact that they were broadcasting the counterculture on the air. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. I was finished with two questions, so I'm going to go with you first. Your proudest moment in pirate radio? Oh, my God. My proudest radio in land-based. Let's say, well, yeah, I've only been land-based. and I didn't quite make it offshore, which is another story. Um, my proudest moment, I think, must be... Being involved with the community lobby group Free the Airwaves. I mean, I loved our outside broadcasts. I love the fact that we gave voices to um, to people in the community. I love the fact that we put out a lot of alternative music and gave airplay to musicians. But I think the Free the Airwaves, because, you know, it wasn't just me. It was um, all of us who were involved with it. And um, it sort of focused our purpose. And that was into creating community radio we'd got commercial radio it had been a major disappointment um but community radio was um which lawrence uh, um, at the ofcom really helped facilitate um people like you and richard barbrook um, and 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 really focused all of our energies i mean at the time the free the airwaves campaign was there idealistically to try and sort of coordinate this growing tension between the pirates, because I remember there was starting to get, always always has been, but, you know, it started getting a bit more tense in terms of battles over frequencies and who was on what time. So we, we just tried to coordinate and to help people. You know, if there's someone putting out a sprog, we'd self-police ourselves and say, hey, this gives us a bad name, let's sort you out and help you and all this type of thing. And I think, you know, but the end goal was for the establishment of community radio, which did come about, not through the direct efforts of Free the Airwaves, but I certainly think it tried to give a um, responsible front to pirate radio. We're always being told in the press that we were blocking emergency frequencies, we were putting out um, naughty stuff or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, it was just... Um, I always like to have networks, always like to have collaboration, always like to have cooperation. And I think Free the Airwaves, even though I was just a bit part player in that, I think um, it represented... Um, uh, um, Put focus on what we were all trying to do, and that is to widen, to to give radio in the hands of the yeah. people, and to widen the listening choice. Well, one of the, one of the things I always talk about is the fact that I think we all had a part of what is happened now and did happen, and probably is likely to happen in the future. And finally, the person you most admire in pirate radio, the person who influenced you most, possibly. Um, there are many. I mean, Kevin Turner. Um, really sort of changed my life a lot uh, when he he sent me his first demo tape his little quarter inch reel of tape arrived in the post at radio zodiac shortwave and um you know it was great music great presentation his first ever demo and funny as well i remember him saying i'm having a great day today until i found green toilet paper in the loo and it was just sort of, it doesn't sound hilarious but it's just my sense of humor and pro- 
bang, another record. And and he took me to Ireland, to Shoreside Radio, for a spell over there. He got me my job at Radio Nova International. He got me an interview with Ronan O'Reilly at Picasso's and the King's Road. And I turned down, it was more of an anointment than an interview. Oh, so you're our new newsreader. And I said, well, not quite. I've got another meeting to see George Powers, as it was, um, uh, who was running London Greek Radio, who put money into Sunshine Radio in the south of France. Kevin came to work for that. He took me to Nova in Italy. So... Uh, Kevin's been my life changer, and um, the person I would say I most admire, on uh, Ronan O'Reilly is just uh, an anti-establishment hero of mine, but that's offshore radio. So the person I most admire in land-based pirate radio, I'd say Pat Edison. Since I started listening to land-based pirate radio, there he was on Radio Jackie, there he was on Radio Kaleidoscope, there he is uh, doing shows several times a day, uh, week on Caroline. He's running our website. He's designed our apps. He's just he's just a committed pirate, and probably should be committed like the rest <laughs> of us. But um, but is 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 you know and and he's a great broadcaster. You know his voice and his humour, uh, just love it. And he's and he's a stickler as well. He'll do, he'll do this my way or the highway, and um, and um, that gives him the drive and the determination to keep doing what he's doing. So there are many that I could quote, but I would have to say. Pat, good on you. Keep doing it. And thank you for, um, for some great entertainment and commitment to Pirate Radio. Excellent. I'm going to throw those two questions at you now. Your most, your, sorry, your proudest moment in Pirate Radio. Uh, very difficult to, you know, to single out moments. I mean, I'd, 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 I'd really, it would be a sequence. It would be a sequence. But primarily, really, as Mark was saying, of the collaboration of being able to help other stations. So although Alice's was great and, you know, I really enjoyed it, I wouldn't probably single that out. I'd single out Kiss when they got their licence. Not so much because of what they became, but because of what they were before. What they became, they were forced to become. And I absolutely don't think was... It wasn't Gordon's fault. You know, Gordon did the best he could in that situation where he had to spend a tonne of money. But it, it was great to see them get their lives. You know, there was been such a, a cooperation, you know, with the DJs, the engineers, the management, and the fact that we all worked together and we got there in the end and they got a, a London-wide FM licence. That was great. And, and, and the, the person, no pressure, but Laurie chose you, so no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's good that you went to Mark first because it gave me a chance to have a little think. I'd have to say Tony Collis because Tony Collis set up the whole culture of independence, determination, self-reliance. And in his case, you know, even, you know, honesty and respect of property rights and all the rest of it, which you've touched on, the fact that pirates, you know, certainly in our generation of pirates, you know, although we love the law-breaking, slightly outlaw aspect of it, really, I think we did have an ethos, which did include, you know, cooperation. And I think it was an honour honor amongst other. thieves thing at the yeah, time. That, yeah, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, Tony Collis, for his determination to go through the, the disappointments he had of everything he'd done with the Jackie and then... And, you know, having had all that public support and even MPs and all the rest of it, and then to end up with absolutely nothing for years, but then to be able to still have the drive to come back, 
buy the station for a pound and prove that it could be done, but it had to be done sensibly. He's yeah. a damn, damn good radio programmer as well. The state, I love Radio, radio Jackie. You know, it's a mainstream local community station. It, it, it doesn't disappoint. Uh, and it's brilliant. It's still there, isn't it? Yeah, it's great yeah. after all that time. Fantastic. Well done, Tony. Thank you. Thank Are you we... for showing us the way. <laughs> yeah. I'd just keep, like to keep say... <laughs> right, they're typical pirates. They're not going to be quiet, so I'm going to shut them up now. So... Mark Dazzani, Martin, <laughs> Mark Dazzani, Martin Spencer, thank you ever so much. Roger Vosine, you mean, surely? If you want to be called Roger Vosine, if you want to be called Dave Lane, that's absolutely fine. Thank you ever so much for being on the podcast. And thank you to Laurie for the facilities and your help today. You're very welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. And th- You're very welcome. And thank you, Mark, for doing the, the Facebook group and the podcast. Really good. Enjoying it. Top job. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate that. Can I have a fag now? (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Pirates of the Airwaves with me, Mark Wakeley, and Martin, Mark and Laurie. Thank you very much to them for their time. Thank you, Laurie, for the facilities of Radio Lab. That's Radio Luton and Bedford, if you wanted to know. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please don't forget to like, follow, subscribe and review. Reviews are really, really important as well. If you want to get in contact with us, that's also very easy. You can email the pod at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about anything to do with the podcast. You can also make any comments you'd like to make about the podcast, of course, on the Facebook group, which is the land-based pirate radio of the 70s and 80s. We'll be back in a uh, couple of weeks with another episode of Pirates of the Airways where I'll be talking to another land-based pirate from that era. So until then, stay safe and remember, look out during those tape changes or keep an eye out for the lift on those blocks. Radio Nova, broadcasting on 1404 kilohertz of the medium wave band, 212 metres. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production.